Down the right field line. Pretty well hit. LeVard way. It's the right way here tonight. Yogi Berra said it's 90% mental. The other half is physical. My name is Ryan LeVarnway, Major League Catcher and Minor League Grinder, and I've spent the last 15 years playing professional baseball while evolving my mindset. I'm fascinated by optimizing that 90%. In this show, I'll talk to elite athletes and mindset coaches about what makes them tick and how they've overcome obstacles in their own careers on the way to finding success. This is Finding the Way. Welcome to Finding the Way. I am Ryan LeVarnway, and today I'm joined by Sebastian Little. Former Yale football player turned leadership and performance coach. I have heard nothing but amazing things about you and your work. Seb, thanks for joining me. Ryan, it's, it's, it's awesome to be here, man. Uh, really excited to chop it up and looking forward to going wherever we go. So, so Yale football, what college were you in? This is like the typical Yaley, asked another Yaley. What, uh, what college were you in? I was in, I was in Saybrook. Um, I'll be honest with you, man. I, I was not the most proud residential college person. So while I will rep Saybrook, it wasn't something that was a huge part of my experience. That's so funny. So for yeah. those listening that don't know how it works, the <laughs> if you've seen Harry Potter, the four schools that they have, the four like uh, intramural sports teams that they have their dining halls and their own libraries, that's based on how Yale and Oxford work. And at Yale, there was 12. I think maybe there's 13 now or 14 even. 14 now. Okay. So I was in Timothy Dwight which again, I don't have like a huge connection to, but I did play all sorts of intramural sports for them. Is that something you did too? I, I did not know. I mean, just with sports, you know how it was. It's just like that ends up being your main thing and you don't have much time for anything else. I love that you use the Harry Potter metaphor though, because it's often what I go to to explain how Yale is set up. Um, yeah. Like, yeah, I was like in the Gryffindor and you were in Hufflepuff and et cetera, et cetera. I love that you just use that metaphor. Do you give yourself credit for being a Gryffindor guy? Yeah. Absolutely. In Harry Potter. I mean, hundred percent. I scored into the house on all the the standardized testing for wizardry, <laughs> uh, and, and sorting sorting hat got it right. I feel like I feel like that's maybe the same thing as when people ask, "What's your spirit animal?" And everyone's like, "Oh, I'm a lion," or "I'm a I'm a wolf," and you're like, "No, you're not. You're like a parrot. You're a dolphin on a good day. Yeah, M- maybe a butterfly. A dolphin because what? Someone you'd say that to someone that's horny or what? Yeah, yeah, or just um." likes to jump people maybe okay well let's they'll come out, they'll come out of nowhere and just and knock you off of, off a of surfboard so funny all right well let's let's stay on topic this is a podcast about mindset and about overcoming obstacles and high performance so you got into leadership and performance coaching how did you get into that field so i was a psychology major during my time at yale and in my sophomore year i had a guy by the name of brian kane come in um and shout out to brian kane who, who, who did incredible work with our team did a lot of work in the baseball men's performance realm. And the, it was one of those moments where you're looking at somebody in their professional realm. You're, it's the first time for me that I was able to say, I could see myself doing that thing because it was applied. Yeah, I think psychology is great. I think the research is great. And, and if we can translate it and apply it, like what, what, are, what are we using it for? Why are we doing the work? And when, when Brian came, came, in, came into our room, uh, we were chanting Thunderstruck um, by ACDC. And the energy was palpable. And when he was on stage kind of talking through mental skills with the team, I was like, oh, there's so many parallels to what I'm learning right now in the classroom. Really dove into mental skills and, and a lot of mindset work after that. And my senior year, I started working with my high school, which was right down the road. Um, so I went to school in New Haven, Connecticut, and and uh, was raised born and raised in Cheshire, Connecticut. So I ended up going back to my high school, got to do work with my high school football team, and, and the rest is history. 
and it seems like from from the work and the content that I've seen you create, mental skills was something that you either, you needed in your own life, and I feel like everyone needs it. Uh, but you talk about living on the intersection of a lot of things. Um, what drew you to psychology in the first place? Was it was it your absent father? Was it talk 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 to me about why you were drawn to it and and how you used it or how you needed it maybe early in your life? When I was in middle school, you did the career search. You started looking at what careers would be interesting to you. And I remember sitting in the library and looking through a lot of therapy, like, oh, I think I want to be a therapist because I really liked helping people with their problems. That was what I assumed and thought therapy was. And it wasn't until high school that I started to understand, understand what psychology was. And it gave me language to speak about the experience that I was having and be able to name it. Because up until that point, I didn't really have the language to say, okay, I felt othered here, or here's where I feel like I, I belonged, or here's this phenomenon that I'm experiencing now. And it felt like a very unique, privatized, lonely experience. And it wasn't until I started to get more of that language that I realized, oh, there's an entire body of work that speaks to the social psychology of people out there and understanding ourselves at a deeper level. And that's for me where coaching came in. Coaching for me has been that that awesome bridge to be able to support people in terms of looking what's next. Therapy tends to be more focused on what happened. Yeah. So a lot of the work for me was was in my own healing. Like my own healing was was getting clear about what I was experiencing so that I can explain it to other people so that I didn't feel so alone. And and for people that don't know your background, what were you healing from? So raised by mom and grandma, absent father. So there was always an interesting masculine feminine dynamic. Got to elementary school and there was uh the experience of being biracial. So grew up in a primarily white town. So there was, I was always darker than my, my white classmates. I was always lighter than a lot of my black classmates. And for me, the, the, the thing that I was working through was, I mean, a lot of the absent father and what that meant for a, a young man growing up. Um, and then also kind of the experience that compounded in part of my own uh, sectioning off of myself, like siloing of my own experience in my own identity i have to be this way in this certain environment i've got to be this way in this environment which doesn't leave a lot of room for self-expression or integration or authenticity which is really the thing that i think i was really craving um so the healing work for me really happened a lot for me in coaching and in the therapy work that i have done over the last five or six years that for me has been um monumental deeply important and one of the concepts that i've heard from you is is sit in the mess, assess, assess the mess and sit in it. Don't try to fight your way out of it. You have to surrender to the journey and the adversity. Where, where did that concept come with? Because I love the, I love the verbiage there of the mess. Like everyone's got baggage, everyone's got problems and, and everyone understands like if there's a mess in the kitchen, like how it feels for things around you to be messy. Where did, where did you come up with that concept? I think our mess is our access point to our deepest level of power and our willingness to sit in our own mess. I could, I, I define mess as the adversity uncertainty that sits between you and your next breakthrough. And it tends to take on four different variables, right? Which is identity. The question being, who am I vision? Where am I going process? How do I get there? Or people, who do I do it with? Generally, if we have our breakdowns or if we're sitting in our own messes, it's typically one to three of those things. If you've got all four, you've got the grand slam. 
congratulations. <laughs> you're probably in like the transformation of your life. Um, and if you notice, like even the ener energetics of looking at a course of a year and, you know, for us being athletes, like a lot of our, our energy happened around seasons. So you had your preseason ramp up. There was certain energy there. You had your in season where it was much more about sustainability and intensity. And then you have your postseason, which is often followed by a crash. And I always got sick after my my in season, like reliably. December, I got sick. It's because like our bodies and our our we all are on a cycle. And I think there's messes that happen for us on cycles. For a lot of parents, it's around the school year starting. Um, there's always just interesting energy there. So a lot of our messes can be predictable if we're looking for the pattern. And some of them are just going to happen because the world needs to serve us a lesson on a plate. My God, dude, you just hit the nail on the head of like how many times have, yeah, I can totally relate to that. How many times have I been in the season and I know it's time to perform, right? It's time to go out there and, and put out and you, and that's what you, th I think of it as posting. If you're a pro, when your name gets called, you show up and that you don't have to be a pro athlete to do that. It's the same for, for any kid or or anyone in any profession that knows this is my time where I need to shine. This is time for me to be at my best, show high performance, I'm under the gun. And your body knows that. There's something there's something psychologically tied between your brain and your soul and your body and your physicality where that responds. And then you sit in the that's very cyclical. I like that. And then you get, you know, your body is, understands now it's time to rest. Now now this is over. And I can I can rest and I can let my defenses down and then maybe you get sick. It's very interesting. I love that you just spoke to like the mind, body, soul. And what I would name that as is, is we're speaking to alignment. And you can call it integrity. Integrity, the way that I define it is the alignment between your intentions, your behaviors, and your words. Like your the, the those those things. And you're also speaking it to like, okay, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. And if we're trying to figure out alignment, the work for us is not about either are we in alignment or out of alignment. The work is can we work to stay in alignment? Can we work to get back to alignment? Because we're always going to be out in some place. So that integrity is do you have it? Not not so much of do you have it or you don't. It's can you can you catch yourself and have the awareness that when you fall out of alignment to work yourself back in and not through the lens of judgment or make right or make wrong, but through the lens of, this is in service of my higher mission or my my goal or my championship season or et cetera, et cetera. Or you can go down to a very small level on that. So let's get into this. Let's double click on this topic. How do you as a coach help your athletes or help your clients stay in alignment? It's almost like you're a uh, emotional and spiritual chiropractor. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I might take that. I might take that. Um I think there's kind of three phases to it. I look at, I use this and, and you'll hear me speak a lot in like in um, simplified process. I believe part of our, part of my work as a coach is to bring three things to the table. First is clarity. The second is, is simplicity. And the last is choice. The last thing we always want to be doing, like be done is like, Hey, as a high performer, here's how you have to do it. When we get really prescriptive, people tend to turn away from it. So the way that I think about the work through staying in alignment is through awareness acceptance and action those kind of three a's if we're not aware of what's going on in ourselves and typically as an athlete it's the somatics it's our body if we're not aware of where that shows up you can even think about it when you have to make a really big decision and there's your your gut is talking before your your words know what to say and that would be an example of being out of alignment or your body is talking to you and it's just for on, on us to be aware of what it's saying the acceptance piece i find is the most challenging to people 
because there's a box that we want to fit in. And if we're trying to mold ourselves to the box, the same way that I did a lot of the time growing up, we're trying to mold ourselves to the box. uh, Likely you are conforming, but you're not accepting the reality of what is or or who who you are. The acceptance piece is, hey, I feel feel sad about this. I feel disappointed about this. I feel... um, challenged by this whatever the thing is the acceptance is actually being able to sit in what is not make right and make wrong and then we can act but if we don't know where we are and we're not actually willing to accept where we are it's going to be hard to make a decision about what's next so the awareness the acceptance and the action is kind of the process that i think about as i'm taking a client through that in a session and you talk about acceptance of of not necessarily fitting in someone else's box the act of defining your own box is like a maturity process that takes a long time. Yes. And, and for me, I, I can point to the fact I was 28 years old when I finally started accepting my own box, 28 to 30. How do you help people? I don't know if, if people need to accelerate that process, but accept the fact that it is a process. Because I, I do lessons with, with young men. They're 12, 13, 14. They're entering you know, middle school and high school. And a lot of times their fathers are like, oh, can you work with him on leadership? And the leadership is a very abstract concept, especially for young people. If, if you ask a youth baseball team, what's leadership or what does it look like? A lot of them will say, oh, you call someone out when they do something wrong or, oh, you want to cheer for your teammates. You want to, nobody really can put their finger on it. Let's, let's start with what's leadership for you and, and what's your approach to it and something that you teach. And then I'd also love you to talk about how you help people understand that it's a process to find out who you are and, and define your own box. There's also an assumption in this as well, or there's an assumption that we often make around there's a process or there's a destination of arrival. And it has us focus more on the destination or the outcome or the goal that it does on the process or the direction. And I often say that direction is more powerful than destination. It's more important for us to be moving north in the in the direction of, for me, it's love, joy, and impact. If I can move in that direction, there will be destinations along that that will be exciting and awesome and exactly what I want. The business that I want, the relationship that I want. But if I move in that direction, joy, impact, love, I can almost guarantee you that there's going to be good things along the way. I define leadership as the process of making something better or creating something that doesn't yet exist, which is as broad as you just introduced it as, right? But leaders, and I believe is part of our work is to speak into the gap and to step into the gap. If we're not aware of what the gap is, and the gap here is not about the negative of what's always broken or wrong or we need to fix, which is often where we look at when we're training leadership. It's like, how do you fix this organization? How do you fix your swing? How do you fix your morning routine? Versus what do you want to create? What doesn't yet exist? And I think about that being the positive gap. And as leaders, part of our work is to identify what are the gaps in systems and individuals and where they want to go, and then be able to speak to, identify, clarify, define, and then offer choice within that gap. Because the, the, the age of like coercive leadership of like, I need you to do something and I'm going to scream it in your face to do so. That's kind of, it's, it's outdated. Yeah, it's, it's over. And also, just like psychologically speaking, it's it's also not a psychologically safe way to do things. It's it's completely outdated. So, even when when I go there, I'm like, hey, let that's antiquated. We're going to archive that. 
let's step into this new paradigm of leadership, which speaks to more around vision and inspiration. And part of that means that we have to be present to the gap or the vision of where we're going and how we want to get there. Man, I, I just wrote down everything that, you, that was so well said and so succinct and so inspirational and, and really visionary to me. So thank you. Um, man, I don't even know where to start. There's so much of that. I, joy, impact, love, and, and creating, filling the gap. It's something I had an experience with on a few teams I've been with where you, once you start to get a little bit older and you've been on a lot of different teams, winning and losing, you start to feel the differences between teams. And like what it just this just feels like a losing team or or we feel like a winning team and we know we're going to win when we show up. And the, when I played in Australia uh, a few months ago, I got there and I could feel that it, it felt just negative. And I, I could feel I just my job as someone that wants to be a leader on this team is just to bring up the vibes. And then there have been other times where that's not appropriate, or you have three other guys that are doing that, and now maybe someone needs to help the team focus. If do you think that that's a role that maybe teammates need to play, or that can be set by the coaching staff? What do you think that the separate roles for people on the team are with that? I think we look. We can look at two things whenever we're looking at that. Um, how do we drive or? construct our culture and the first one is what's that emergent thing that happens from the system so because our core values are a b and c because our core values are hard work leadership communication and fun right if we don't do the work to operationalize those said another way if we don't do the work to define the behaviors pro and against for and against those core values we can't expect the system to serve us we can't expect culture to be valuable to us unless we define what that is Right. And then when you walk into those rooms, then you feel it, because especially if you walk in as an outside outsider or, or like when I walk in as a consultant within 30 to 60 minutes, I can typically feel the culture of a team. Then it's just my work to have to name it because it's really valuable for the usually my client if I can name it for them. That's one way. So if our culture can drive results, that's awesome. The other is that you have to have culture architects or people that are going to be stewards of it. And that's kind of what you were speaking to in terms of the role. So who are the people? that are willing to be the jerk or the jackass that are, are willing to be the stickler to hold the cultural standard. Most people don't like that because it actually requires us to sacrifice some of our social currency. And we use social capital when we, when we consistently do that over time. And if you don't have a couple of those, your culture will probably drop because then you drop to things that you accept. So the role of, I need to look for, Hey, th the bats aren't, exactly where they should be or our, our locker room is completely dirty right now or um, the sideline is a complete array those things matter and if there's not somebody that's looking out for those things that are stewards of that typically you'll see culture start to drop and then we start to throw up the palms like palms up which is always like i always find it really indicative of something because there's no ownership in palms up oh what are we doing now how do we do this yeah and yeah. then we start asking questions and we start pointing fingers etc cetera, etc cetera. talking about taking care of the little things in addition to to letting the big things take care of themselves if you set up the systems for it. Man, the, oh, I love this, I love this question. So, so the part of the thing that I'm, I've wrestled with over the last couple of years and my coach brilliantly called me out on it. We're in this conversation and I, and I go, hey man, you know, I've been really out of, out of sorts. Energy hasn't been good. Motivation's been low, right? Which again is normal and cyclical and there's a season to it. I go, 
I got to get back in the gym. I got to get back in the physical. Got to start lifting weights again. I got to start running again. I got to start pushing and disciplining, disciplining myself in order to, to get myself back into it, which is like such a masculine and athletic approach to getting back on, like back on the horse. And, you know, I'm talking about, you know, as a business, like business owner, as a coach, like me being 225 with 10% body fat is not relevant or that important at this phase in what I'm up to. Right. And he just really, really reflected. He said, Hey, well, what are the things in terms of prioritization of your, your health and your spirit? What are the things that are most important for us to get you back into alignment? And I started to, we started to list out what are the priorities for me to get to being a college athlete and to playing at a high level. And I was like, all right, well, physicals, physical is important. The mental, right. The relational, probably the emotional, then the spiritual, probably the last thing. He goes, what's the thing that allows a professional, uh, a high level college athlete now, or a high level professional athlete to su- succeed at that level, which is something that you did for 10 years, right? 10, 15, 12 years. How, how long were you in the league? A long time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Long time. <laughs> right. The, what got you there won't ultimately get you there or get you to the next place. And likely, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this too. You had to reprioritize some of those things because the physical filter wasn't the most important thing anymore. So I, what I had to to relook at again for more of a the high level or the sustainable excellence over time, the shift likely comes to when the athlete is willing to say, "Hey, I'm going to put emotional, mental, relational as the top priority because I actually already have systems and structures that will support me in my physical." So we had to re- reshuffle. It's when you see athletes that get out get get out on the uh, the interview after game and said, "I just want to I want to thank God. I want to thank the my higher power. I want to thank my family and friends for getting me to this point." I want to thank my teammates because it becomes more about leveraging those other things that makes us successful at the next level. And that's something and I've heard you talk. Yeah. That's something I've heard you talk about for players that are injured also on a team. How can they stay a productive and helpful member of the team when they can't perform physically? Because functional performance is now not possible. So let's say you've got a large pizza and Three quarters of that pizza is your functional excellence. Meatballs, tomatoes, broccoli, right? That's what you're typically known for. It's what you typically prioritize. It's probably your favorite slice to eat eat off. What I've seen over and over again with athletes that get injured is when they get injured, they shrink the size of their pizza. They produce small pizzas. (laughs) They decrease the value that they're bringing to the team, to the unit, right, to the leadership. And the thing that I often encourage our folks to do is, is when you get injured, the size of your pizza doesn't change. Your value doesn't change, but it does get redistributed. So you don't have the same pizza. Your pizza might be, not be the same composition anymore. The toppings will likely change. You're not talking about three quarters of it being just about functional excellence, how far you can hit, how far you can throw, what block you're making, what catch you're making. It's less about that. However, it is on you and incumbent upon you to figure out the other allocation of your pizza. Half your pizza now might be communication. The other half might be watching film and doing extra film study that you're pumping all the film study that you have into your teammates, et cetera, et cetera. So your allocation changes, but the pizza size shouldn't. Interesting. Let me know. Let me know if I need to hit that another way. No. Well, I mean, first of all, your, your pizza toppings are shocking to me. Meatballs, tomatoes, and broccoli are coming off the top. Yeah. That that was honestly an aggressive combination. I regret (laughs) I regret that. If you're Papa John's listening right now, please don't endorse me on that. And I'd still like a, another another show. But no, but I love I love the idea. I love the concept because I have I've been hurt before, and I've I've stayed with the team and and 
been a member of the team and, and cheered in the dugout. And there's been other times where I've been shipped off, off to the spring training facility to go rehab. And being away from the team is a whole nother mental battle. But I think what happens with, with that case is they either do what's best for, for you as the player. Where, where are you going to get the best care and the most attention? Or what's best for the team? Who, who are you as a person when you're not on the field? And what do you bring to the table? Because I think those intangibles that you just mentioned are so either so valuable or so overlooked. Um, I, I, when, when injury happens, one of the things that happened, so my senior year, I tore my ACL. And I remember the option to, I had my fifth season left, but I had already taken a semester off. So basically I was already committed to coming back for my fifth season. And I remember just the idea of not having a choice. I think oftentimes having choices are a really empowering thing. But I, at that point, I chose to not have a choice. Like Kobe talks about it being he signed a contract with himself. So anything else was off the table and it wasn't an option. But for me, it wasn't a choice not to be back on the field in September for game one. And it was it was a beautiful thing about it because all the other options to say, I want to hang the cleats up or this is really hard or... I'm not going to come back in full force or et cetera, et cetera. All the different excuses that we can put in were off the table because I didn't have any other choices. And I, I don't know if we use that enough because I think it's really empowering to have choice and practicing no choice and certain things. This is going to work. I will make this work. I think it's a really, really powerful option. Yeah. Burn the boat, right? Burn the boat behind you. So you can't retreat. Yeah, exactly. If there's only one option, you're going to do everything in your power Versus like, it's not in the back of your head. Like, oh, I could always go back. Yeah, exactly. Nice. So thank you. So, I mean, you've shared so much great stuff with me today. Uh, before I, I let anyone go, I always ask the same question of all my guests, my guests. And that is that if you could speak to someone like you, that's a kid that has really big dreams, um, really big goals, or even if you wanted to speak to yourself as a teenager, what's the best advice that you could give? Define winning on your own terms. I think competition is great. I think winning is great. For a lot of my, a lot of growing up, I was trying to win on other people's terms. And over the last couple of years, I have enjoyed so much more winning on my own. And that has looked like growing my business the way that I want to. That has looked like creating relationships that I want to. And then most importantly, it's about building the relationship with myself that I'm proud of versus the thing that I'm told I should or what social media says or what the books say I should be. That's been defining winning on my own terms has been the most important thing that I've ever done. And what does winning look like on your terms? Joy, love, and impact. Joy, love, and impact. Beautiful. Sebastian Little, there's so much here talking about staying aligned physically, emotionally, spiritually in your cyclical messes. Uh, clarity, simplicity, and choice is your job as a coach. And then putting the direction and the joy, impact, and love and, and winning on your own terms. So, so many great nuggets that I'm going to, I can't wait to listen back to this myself and, and really try to implement these, some of these things in my life. Hopefully our listeners really enjoyed this too. Um, in the show notes, we'll have where to find Seb Sebastian Little, everything that he's working on. Check him out. Uh, 
Thank you so much for joining us. This has been Finding the Way. I'm Ryan Lavarno with Sebastian Little, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Finding the Way with Ryan Lavarnway. Find previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.